Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consult, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Mark Bonaca to discuss the findings of the recent Voyager PAD trial and the use of low-dose rivaroxaban in peripheral artery disease after revascularization. I'm your host, Dr. Krista Nottage, one of this year's editorial fellows. Usually, I'm joined by my co-fellows, Ken and Ahmad, but we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and so I'm recording remotely. We hope that you're all keeping well and safe out there as you battle on the front line. Peripheral artery disease affects some 200 million persons worldwide, with about 8 million in the United States. There has been little in the way of research focused on the peripheral artery disease population, and much of our practice has grown out of findings for PAD subgroups in cardiovascular trials. Although they share many risk factors with coronary artery disease, PAD patients are a unique high-risk population. As such, there was a need for a unique PAD story. The vascular outcome study of aspirin, along with rivaroxaban in endovascular or surgical limb revascularization for PAD, or Voyager PAD trial, recently published in the NEJM, has shed some light on this story. Current guidelines recommend antiplatelet monotherapy for the majority of cases and dual antiplatelet therapy, commonly aspirin and clopidogrel, for endovascular interventions. Even with these, limb events and complications remain high for this subgroup of patients. In this episode of Curbside Consult, we are joined by Dr. Mark Bonaca, a cardiologist, vascular medicine specialist, and associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado. Dr. Banaka is one of the lead authors of the Voyager PAD trial published in the journal and debuted at the Virtual American College of Cardiology meeting. The results of the Voyager PAD trial give evidence to support the use of an antithrombotic regimen to reduce complications following interventions for PAD. With the help of Dr. Banaka, let's now take a closer look into the findings of the trial. Welcome, Dr. Banaka, and thank you for taking this time to join us. We hope that you and your staff are keeping well and safe out there in Colorado. Well, thank you for inviting me to join. We are sort of working through this pandemic along with everyone else, and I hope all of the listeners are safe and healthy, too. I know uh, many are probably on the front lines, as I am. I hope everyone's safe and healthy. Thank you. Let's begin, then, with the basics. What is peripheral artery disease? And briefly, what are some of the underlying causes? Peripheral artery disease is broadly defined as arterial disease outside of the coronaries and so could involve the arteries supplying the uh, arms, subclavians, the carotid arteries, mesenteric, and so on. But really what um, we're describing in this context as peripheral artery disease is atherosclerosis of the arteries that supply the lower extremities. And that's a very specific manifestation and the most common of peripheral artery disease that, of course, comes, as you described, with a risk of limb problems. What are some of the factors that would put a patient at risk for PAD? I've heard you describe acute limb ischemia in this, as the STEMI equivalent of the leg. I love that description, and I find it's very illustrative. Are acute and critical limb ischemia presentations becoming increasingly common? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you, you'd ask sort of about risk factors for PAD. Those are very similar to atherosclerosis, particularly smoking and diabetes are the strongest risk factors. 
But a lot of folks that get atherosclerosis of the coronaries don't have PAD and vice versa. In fact, in the Voyager trial, in a previous trial called Euclid, less than 30% of the patients have symptomatic coronary disease. So this is a different population. And as you just mentioned, um, you know, one of the most feared manifestations is acute limb ischemia, the heart attack or STEMI equivalent in the legs. That is a very bad problem. And it's one that's much more frequent than many doctors appreciate because instead of calling a cardiologist or a medicine doctor, which I am obviously in the middle of the night, the vascular surgeon often that gets called to see the patient. So they, they're cared for by different clinicians depending on the setting. And ALI or acute limb ischemia is becoming more frequent because the most potent risk factor for acute limb ischemia in a patient with PAD is having a limb intervention. And it's not the intervention itself necessarily. Some of it's technical failure, but it really is who are the patients that have such severe disease that they need surgery or endovascular care. And what's important to note is the most vulnerable period after revascularization is the first year. But even after that, long-term, years after the intervention, a PAD patient who's had an intervention on their limbs is at about a fourfold risk for acute limb ischemia versus a PAD patient who's have never had a revascularization, and they never return to that sort of stable PAD profile. I am a general surgery resident, and you're right. It's on the vascular surgeon or the general surgeon that's called for these patients, but having cast it in the light of the STEMI equivalent of the leg, it's clear that we need a much more multimodal approach and a broader approach to treating these patients. So I find quite a bit of what you've said I want to tease out. First, I want to know what are some of the current treatment options and interventions for patients who present with symptomatic PAD? What is it that we go to first and how do we approach the treatment? Also, in those patients who've undergone revascularization, you would think that that intervention would resolve their issues when, as you said, in fact, it puts them at a four times higher risk of subsequent ischemic events. Why is that? Why is it that a surgery to revascularize the limb then makes them more vulnerable to further ischemia? So that's kind of a two-part question, but I appreciate if you could take us through. Sure. Great question. Very thoughtful question. So you, know, you started with what's the treatment for peripheral artery disease? And this is where it's really difficult because I think medical therapy has largely been defined based on subgroup analyses from coronary or cardiology trials in stable populations, not in the revascularization setting. So we know that antiplatelet monotherapy is beneficial for reducing heart attacks and strokes. We know that from meta-analyses like the Antithrombotic Trials Collaborative and trials like the complete Capri trial, and those inform class one indications in PAD for antiplatelet monotherapy. But those are therapies to reduce heart attack and stroke, not limb outcomes, and that's in a stable setting. Similarly, the data that we have around statins and LDL lowering is in stable populations. There is more recent data from the Fourier trial showing that very low LDL with PCSK9 inhibitors reduces limb risk, but again, that's in a stable setting. And most of the data we have around lipid lowering is around major adverse cardiovascular events. And then we know that therapies like ACE inhibitors are beneficial in atherosclerosis, including PAD subgroups. And so that, along with exercise and smoking cessation, has been their sort of guideline recommendations for PAD for many, many years. But none of that data speaks to the intervention patient or the post-intervention risk. And there, actually, in spite of a couple of trials, there was one called CASPER with the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel versus aspirin alone after surgical bypass. 
That was one trial which, uh, unfortunately, did not meet its primary endpoint. It was neutral for mace and limb events, but caused more bleeding. And then another trial called the Dutch uh, BOA trial, which looked at warfarins after intervention for graft thrombosis, and again, did not meet its primary endpoint and caused really an intolerable risk of bleeding. And so everything we know about treating PAD is largely, from a medical perspective, been derived from these MACE trials or adverse cardiovascular event trials in stable populations. And there's been really nothing in the interventional setting that's been efficacious. And that's where Voyager was really designed to address that gap in knowledge and provides new knowledge. Now, the second part of your question was, what is it about revascularization? I think you're right. I mean, a patient might think that, hey, if you're going to put a stent in my leg artery or you're going to do a bypass, my leg troubles are over, now I'm fixed. And that's actually the opposite. That's the beginning of the risk. And so I think a couple things. First of all, um, it's complicated. Part of the risk is just who the patients are. Patients that need intervention are sicker. They have more atherosclerosis, more comorbidities. And so the need for intervention identifies a population that is very high risk. But even after you adjust for those risk factors, there is a very high risk of limb outcomes after the intervention itself. And some of that is likely related to technical failures. And we know that grafts can thrombose. We know that stents can thrombose or that there may be artery to artery embolism. We have to remember that intervention in the limb arteries, you have a lot of vascular territory and you're doing things like atherectomy, ballooning, stenting, you're disrupting the vasculature. And so there is a technical risk associated with that, particularly in the first year. So I think there's the risk profile of these patients is twofold. It's who they are because they need the intervention. And then there's risk related to the intervention itself. That's an excellent explanation. I really appreciate you having shed some light on that. And it made me think about Virchow's triad because we already have high-risk patients and then the intervention itself is causing endothelial damage. And of course, we know that that sets you up for further coagulopathy and clotting issues. So that's great. That really helps me to understand what's going on. So with the Voyager trial, this is very special because it took a population of patients who were usually represented in the secondary or subgroup or even exploratory analyses of cardiovascular trials, these PAD patients, and put them at the center of a study. And I can hear from your answer, the motivation for doing that was recognizing that this is a very special population of persons whom we haven't studied and whose outcomes we haven't looked at as closely as some of the cardiovascular outcomes. And so I just wanted you to talk to me a little bit about how your team became focused on this group of patients and what the goal was in terms of engaging in this trial. Well, thank you. You know, very, very thoughtful question. And, and, and what you're saying is true. You know, Voyager was really designed to address what I think is a glaring gap in medical therapy knowledge for an important group of patients. And it's a distinct group of patients. It's a different population. It's a different risk profile. And I think for many years, there has been the tendency to sort of lump together patients uh, with atherosclerosis with the notion that they share similar biology, which to some extent is true. You know, patients who've had stroke and heart attack and peripheral artery disease kind of lump them together with a one-size-fits-all strategy. I think what we've learned is stroke patients behave differently. They have strokes. They have a different safety profile. Um, PAD patients are just different than coronary patients. And 
you know, you see that in this trial. You see that the, only 10% of these patients in a Voyager-like population have ever had a plaque rupture event versus 100% in a post-MI population. And that's in spite of a really malignant atherothrombotic phenotype, um, particularly in the limb. So there's just a distinct population. So we designed Voyager, and I'll say that I was grateful to be a part of the team, but it was a very broad, collaborative, multidisciplinary team. We had an executive committee led by uh, Rupert Bowersox and Will Hyatt, but included interventional cardiologists, vascular surgeons, vascular medicine, and so on, because this is such a different population. And really, the motivation was, if we're going to improve the provision of care for patients with peripheral artery disease, we need to provide evidence that is relevant for the population that we're talking about and the setting in which they are at their highest risk when they're most vulnerable, and that's post-intervention. And we need to look at them with an intervention designed to reduce the thrombotic risks that they face and for outcomes that are relevant to this population. The risk is driven by their limbs. That is why we're studying PAD. And so to look at a MACE outcome only for this population doesn't make sense. And so this trial is designed to select a population in a high-risk setting and to look at the outcomes that matter uh, with an intervention that we hoped would make a difference, and it did. Let's talk a little bit about that intervention. So rivaroxaban was chosen, and why was this drug chosen as opposed to another newer oral anticoagulating agent, of which rivaroxaban is one, and kind of why the low dose, why 2.5 milligrams? Just take us through how rivaroxaban was chosen, the dose, and uh, what we expected to see, and how it would be different to the standard antiplatelet therapy. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think it's critical that people think about this when they, when they prescribe, because not all of these drugs are the same at the different doses. And so let me um, you know, rewind a bit in history. And there was a trial called the ATLAS trial led by Jessica Mega and Mike Gibson and Dr. Bromwell. This was at the Timmy study group. And there's a phase two trial that looked at different doses of a factor 10A inhibitor, uh, part of the class of drugs we call NOAX or DOAX. That was a phase two trial that looked at all these different doses for arterial disease to try to understand what the right dose was. Now, there were similar trials that were going on with these agents in other states like atrial fibrillation or in patients to prevent deep vein thrombosis or to treat DVT or pulmonary embolism. And these drugs have gotten broad adoption. There are the direct thrombin inhibitors like dabigatrin, and then there's other factor 10A inhibitors like adoxaban and apixaban. And, and now these are in broad use for things like AFib and for DVT-PE. What's different about rivaroxaban was this extensive experience at different doses for arterial disease. And through the ATLAS program, they arrived on a dose that was 2.5 milligrams twice daily. It's about 25% of the total daily dose used for something like atrial fibrillation, a very low dose. And it was studied in the ATLAS trial in the acute coronary syndrome population. And, and low in a full whole was not only efficacious for MACE, but reduced mortality. And that was a trial led by Mike Gibson and Jess Mega, and again, it's a Timmy study group. That dose in the arterial observations were very compelling and led to this theory of a dual pathway approach of adding a very low dose anticoagulant to an antiplatelet to reduce the effect of thrombin in these patients. And for a moment, it's worth recognizing that thrombin 
not only plays an important role in the coagulation cascade, but is the most potent activator platelet, which are, of course, very important in these thrombotic events. And so then that data led to two trials, one the COMPASS trial, which looked at a very broad atherosclerosis population in the stable setting, and then the Voyager trial, which was a distinct population, but PAD patients after intervention. And the hope was that this dual pathway approach would reduce these really severe thrombotic events uh, and have acceptable safety as a strategy for risk reduction. Going a bit into the trial design, I was struck by the fact that this trial included some 6,564 patients, but in its design, it had a broad number of test sites, over 500. And using 34 countries, it was multinational in its design. That's quite a feat. How were the participating countries chosen? That's a great question. Clinical trials are, um, you know, takes a village, if you will, a global village to do a true global uh, multi-site randomized trial. You know, we at CPC here at the University of Colorado have been involved in several, and this was one that we really played a key role in leading, and this was in partnership with the sponsors there and Jansen and our executive committee. And I think what's important to your point here is that the trial was designed to be pragmatic and representative of what people are doing in regular practice. And because of that, the sites chosen in the countries, in the local investigators, are really vascular doctors. These were, again, not a subgroup of a cardiology trial where people were just sort of looking through the medical record to find some PAD patients. These were sites in countries that were really vascular sites. We take care of PAD patients, we do PAD intervention, and we're gonna enroll our representative patients in this trial. The other aspect is that we wanted to have a true representation of different practice patterns. And there's a lot of heterogeneity in the PAD world in terms of when do you revascularize, what modality do you use? Do you use an endovascular approach, a surgical approach, and how you might go about that? Do you use a drug-coated product, non-drug-coated product? What's your use of clopidogrel and your duration? We felt it was really important to make this trial generalizable and interpretable to have a broad range of different practice patterns so that it would be relevant when we looked at these subgroups to that people that are treating this population. And so you know, that was what drove the selection of the sites and the countries. We wanted to have a very representative um, and generalizable cohort of patients. And it is a large trial. As you noted, for the vascular space, this is the largest PAD post-intervention trial ever done in a very rich database, which is really, I think, helping us understand how different this population is than the coronary or the cerebrovascular population. Who is the intended audience of this trial? And whose practice do you see the outcomes affecting? Cardiologists or vascular specialists like yourself, general or vascular surgeons? I know that you spoke a little bit about the participants in the trial being mostly vascular specialists or persons treating PAD day in and day out. But the results of the trial, to whose practice are you speaking? That's a great question and core to this whole discussion. Because if you take a broad look, in spite of the evidence sort of gleaned from subgroups of cardiology trials or sort of PAD subgroups of broader athero trials like heart protection study, and you look at even the COMPASS trial, which was a very elegant trial with very compelling results, the uptake, the translation of therapies into PAD is poor. And it's different than the coronary space, and it's different than the cerebrovascular space. If you look at the utilization of therapies in patients who have PAD and 
and don't have known coronary disease, for example, it's consistently lower than other populations and is poor. And so this trial was designed to address that gap in some ways where other trials haven't. And it's quite specific in that we wanted a population that was representative of a true PAD population. And I think a lot of times when people are reading sort of subgroups of other studies, they're kind of looking at the baseline characteristics and saying, well, this doesn't really look like the patients I'm treating. And this trial, if you look at the baseline characters, this is a true PAD population. There's not a lot of coronary disease, a lot of risk factors, a lot of comorbidities, and there's bad limb disease. And this is who the clinicians treating PAD are seeing. So we wanted the baseline characteristics to really represent a true vascular practice. The second part of it, the reason why there's been poor uptake, I think, of preventive medical therapies is the setting. Secondary prevention If you say you need to add the fifth or sixth drug to a patient in your clinic when you have 15 minutes and they feel fine, that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to keep stacking on therapies. And we know that the most successful time to change the therapeutic makeup or the intervention for a patient is when an event happens in their life. We know this from the acute coronary syndromes, right, where we have shown uh, in cardiology trials that high-intensity statins and intensive lipid lowering with PCSK9s or dual antiplatelet therapy with P2I12 inhibitors like Ticagrelor, those are beneficial. Those get adopted because the clinicians and the patients understand this is the patient, this is the event, this is when I start the therapy, and this is what the risk-benefit is. And so Voyager is quite unique in that regard in that it's centered around the intervention. And so that we hope that now people that are treating this population understand who the patients are, when is the time to start it, and how that relates to an event in their lives, and how this therapy will then affect risk and and what the risk benefit is. How did your team choose the primary and secondary outcomes that they wanted to measure or that this trial would measure? Were they based on the most feared outcomes in this population or the most frequent outcomes for this population, or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, great question. So the primary outcome was quite unique. It was a five-point composite outcome that included acute limb ischemia, major amputation of vascular cause, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or cardiovascular death. So those were the five components. And they were chosen as the five outcomes that constituted irreversible harm events in this population. And so they were chosen on the basis of all having very bad severity. And you could argue, which is worse, but I think that everyone would agree that you don't want to have a heart attack or a stroke or acute limb ischemia. And in fact, the outcomes around acute limb ischemia are actually worse than those for myocardial infarction. So they were all felt to be of equivalent severity and to be the most common of those types of events in this population. Now, there are other things that are frequent, like recurrent revascularization, but you might say that's a softer endpoint. So these five were, were considered hard, irreversible harm endpoints of roughly equivalent severity and that are frequent in this population. The um, safety outcome, principal safety outcome was tinny major bleeding, and that was purposely selected because it's an interventional setting. So you have background bleeding from the procedures, but also ISTH and bark bleeding was reported. For efficacy for secondary outcomes, you'd asked about that, and I think it's worth highlighting a couple of novel ones or several that were reported, but but maybe two that are worth recognizing just in the context of this conversation. One secondary outcome was just the need for an unplanned index limb revascularization for ischemia. And if you take a moment to think about it, if you're the interventionalist 
and you're doing the endovascular approach or you're doing the surgery, what is the thing you're most worried about in the intervention? It's that the patient's going to come back with an ischemic limp related to the procedure. Yeah. And that they need another procedure now to to fix that. And this significantly reduced. This was about a two and a half percent absolute risk reduction. And then the other endpoint I'll just mention before we dive too deep into the results is a lot of vascular trials, particularly in critical in ischemia, look at event-free survival because it's a very sick population. And so one of the secondary outcomes replaced CV death with all-cause mortality and is essentially event-free survival. And this also was significantly reduced. So the trial results showed that for patients with symptomatic peripheral artery disease who've undergone lower extremity revascularization, adding rivaroxaban to background aspirin, reduced this risk of your five-point composite outcome at three years. But what is the actual risk reduction between the two groups? Sometimes we talk as trialists in terms of relative risk reductions, and we have a hazard ratio and a p-value. This is highly significant, 15% relative risk reduction, but that doesn't really tell the story of what's happening to the patient because really all depends on the background risk profile. And so if it's a very rare event, then 15% risk reduction doesn't maybe not mean it as much versus something that's frequent. So I always start looking at these trials with the Kaplan-Meier curves and looking at the placebo population. And remember here, when I say placebo, you're talking about best standard of care, with aspirin, statin, clopidogrel. This is best standard of care. And when you look at this population for the five-point component of the primary endpoint, one in five 20% or 19.9% to be precise, but 20% had a bad outcome event at three years. That's a very high event rate. If you look at most cardiovascular secondary prevention studies, the event rates are half that. So this is a very sick population in spite of the best standard of care. And so then when you think of the relative risk reduction, you step back and say, well, what is the absolute risk reduction? And the absolute risk reduction that was seen was robust. Overall, there was a 2.6% absolute risk reduction. That means that the number needed to treat with this strategy was 39. That's a very low number needed to treat, uh, especially in this space. And this is not just for a high-risk subgroup. This is for the entire population. And that number needed to treat was low even at six months or one year after the intervention. With regard to the safety outcomes, you did mention the TIMI score and major bleeding is one of the outcomes in both groups. But what the trial did find was that there was more bleeding among the patients in the rivaroxaban group. What I want to know from you is whether you thought that increased bleeding was worth it in a risk-benefit ratio for still pursuing that treatment arm. And I think that's, that is a, uh, an excellent question, really kind of strikes at the core of clinical care, right? Is the risk-benefit acceptable? We expected to see more bleeding. All trials of antithrombotics have more bleeding, and rivaroxaban is no different. And I'll say we were particularly worried about bleeding because this population and the other trials, if you look at the WAVE trial or Dutch BOA, like I talked about, this is a very vulnerable bleeding risk population because of their comorbidities, age, renal dysfunction. There's a lot of bleeding with other therapies. And so we were worried about it. And like you said, there was more bleeding. Now, Timmy Major bleeding had a p-value 0.06. I would caution people to not interpret that as neutral. There was clearly more bleeding. Uh, It wasn't powered for bleeding, so I wouldn't spend too much time on the p-value. And you see the hazard ratio is about 1.43 or about one quarter of 1% per year in terms of the bleeding excess. And when you look at very sensitive bleeding measures like ISTH, those were increased about the same magnitude from the relative risk perspective. But 
absolute was about 0.5 to 0.6% per year. So there's more bleeding as we expected. But I have to say, the magnitude of bleeding was lower than we had feared. And there was no excess in irreversible harm events like fatal bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage and, and no excess really in procedural bleeds or take back bleeds, which we had put a lot of emphasis on with the data monitoring committee. So that was positive. But let's put it together and say, what's the risk benefit for this strategy? If you take the perspective of, if I were to take 10,000 patients and treat them with this strategy for a year, broad PAD population after intervention, regardless of whether you're using clopidogrel or whatever, 10,000 patients treated for a year, how does it boil down? And what you get is that you prevent 181 primary endpoint events, that's the ALI, MI, stroke, all those, and the cost is 29 Timmy major bleeds without any excess in intracranial hemorrhage or fatal bleeding and no excess in take back or procedural bleeds. And so to sort of distill it down, it's a six to one benefit risk ratio with the adoption of this strategy. Another couple of points I just wanted to bring out, the trial population was split between patients who were quadricants, 77% were quadricants, and 23% of those in your patient population had critical limb ischemia. And I want to know, were the outcomes different between these groups of patients? Great question. And one we've been asked about, and I think we'll dive into more detail. But like you said, about a quarter of the patients, or about 1,500 patients had critical limb ischemia, and the rest were clodicans. And what was interesting is these populations are very different, as you'd expect. The CLI patients had much higher risk overall. But what's quite interesting and I think important is that the benefit of rivaroxaban was the same, whether you were a clodican or a patient coming in with CLI. And this is, I think, particularly meaningful for the CLI patients. There are very few therapies that have been proven to be efficacious in a CLI population. There's a lot of competing risks, a lot of comorbidity, but the benefit was the same, regardless of the presenting syndrome. You mentioned earlier about graft, and I wanted to ask, was there any effect on graft patency in the long run based on the use of rivaroxaban? And did you note that in this trial, or is that maybe an area of study that has yet to be explored? This is a very important question and one where key data is going to be presented in the coming months. But I think to take it at a high level, the benefit of the therapy was the same. Rivaroxaban was the same, whether or not patients were treated with an endovascular or surgical approach. There was consistent benefit. But if you actually look closely at the surgical subgroup where they're getting these graphs, the absolute risk was higher and the absolute benefits were even greater, particularly for limb outcomes. And we have in our data set a lot of data around whether these were prosthetic graphs and vein graphs. We also have whether there was failure. And so there are going to be more data, but I'll tell you at a top line, the benefits in the surgical subgroup are very clear in absolute terms, even greater than the endovascular group, relative terms the same. And so I think there is likely a benefit in terms of graft patency. We'll have to see how the data bear out, but I think there is. And the other thing I'll mention is we have a, an angiographic subgroup of 2,500 patients where we have all the baseline angiograms and we can really understand what are those predictors of the graphs of the baseline anatomy of limb risk and how the drug responds there. Well, it sounds as though this can take off in many different directions, and it's music to my ears to hear the surgical promise and the outcomes. I think that through everything that you've told us, it's clear that these findings will change practice and will have a large impact on outcomes for patients in the peripheral artery disease population. Thank you, Dr. Banaka. And if I could ask before you go, could you summarize just a few key takeaway points from this study? 
first of all, say it's a pleasure to have had the opportunity to have this interaction. And if any of the listeners want more information, please feel free to email me anytime. But just maybe the take-home points, like you said, I'd say these are the take-home points. Patients with PAD, lower extremity PAD are different. They're different than other atheropopulations. It's a distinct population. They're at their most vulnerable period for ischemic events and bleeding after revascularization. And that ischemic risk profile is largely driven by limb outcomes. A strategy of rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone, whether or not you use background clopidogrel, it is beneficial. It reduces the spectrum of ischemic risk. It does so early. It's consistent over time. It's consistent among the major subgroups, and it's of a large magnitude with a number needed to treat of 39. And although there is more bleeding, there clearly is more bleeding. The benefit risk is about sixfold. And overall, the strategy appears to have net benefit in this population. I would again like to thank Dr. Mark Banaka for joining us today and sharing what has been very exciting research in the future treatment of peripheral artery disease. Curbside Consults is a production of the NEJM Group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360. Our production team includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Kathy Stern, Tim Vining, and Scott Williams. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the nejm.org pages. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Kristen Nottage signing off. Keep safe out there.